0: I'm Mark Steiner, here on the home of the 2016 mayoral debate, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. Uh, We're about to have another conversation with somebody who has graced our airwaves many times over the last several years, Michael Twitty, culinary historian of African and African-American foodways, blogger at AfroCulinaria, a TED fellow, uh, and much more, and just had a really cool article written about him, on February 16th in the Washington Post. I like the article a lot. Michael, good to have you back, man. How are you?
1: Hi, I'm, I'm kind of exhausted from <laughs> days and days and days in Canada, but uh, it was fun, and I'm glad to be back home.
0: Days. So you, you what would you go to Canada for?
1: Um, I went to Canada um, as a TED fellow for the big TED conference. The little TED conferences called TEDx, which are kind of licensed out, and those are individual... To certain communities, then there's TED Global, and this was the big overall TED conference uh, in Vancouver, Canada, British Columbia. Nice town. And the theme this year was Dream. Um, number of you know great speakers were there, uh, Shonda Rhimes, Al Gore. Um, speakers, you know, I, I, you know, to hear someone talk about what it's like to be a blind physicist. Or to hear a you know, 12-year-old girl from India talk about, you know, it's not about what kids do when they grow up. It's about how to support kids as they are now.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, so a lot of powerful messages. In fact, one of my fellow fellows today is, uh, you know, petitioning Congress to support her bill that she's introduced to um, or written um, to support a comprehensive bill of rights for the survivors. Sexual assault. So, wow. from people studying cavefishes to people who are hunting asteroids, uh, I've been around a lot of talented people who make me feel like I'm not as smart as them, no, but that's you, okay.
0: No, no, no. Because you you were the only, you were the only <laughs> TED scholar there who was t- dealing with food, though, right?
1: Yes, I was the only one dealing with food issues um, in this year in terms of the TED Fellows group. Yeah. So and very few there were there were not that many people um, on the main stage dealing with food either. So it was I was one of a select few who had that as part of this conversation.
0: It's phenomenal, man! Congratulations. Thank you. I'm glad to see. I like I like watching you take off. This is a good thing. You have a bunch of new things happening. Let me help, yeah. ask you about a few of them and and getting some other stuff to reintroduce some of the things you've been doing to our listeners, but. What is this cooking gene project that explores your own roots and the African roots of Southern cooking? What what is this?
1: So um, a couple of years ago, um, I really wanted to sort of reconnect with my own personal story, of how I got here through food, and I you know I've been running my mouth talking about where my family was from, but I came to realize that I was starting to forget certain things. Um, you know not just getting older, but life gets in the way and then all of a sudden the details start to fade. And so I realized that the narrative that I was submitting wasn't exactly clear. And it wasn't, you know, I I was talking in generalities. And some of the places that I talked about, counties, locations, I'd never been to before. So I did what a lot of us want to do, and go back to these parts of the South where my family was from. But I decided to not just leave it there. I wanted to look at food, how the food got my family through this long journey from Africa to America and from slavery to freedom, but also how food worked in a contemporary sense in all the different communities that I was visiting. So in terms of food justice, culinary justice, um, all sorts of issues around social justice and food, economics and food. And also the maintenance of our tradition and our cultures, the diversity of African American culture—all of that came into play. But also, how did non-Black people, who had been a part of this cultural exchange through food and benefited from the creativity, the culinary creativity of Africans, how did they change? How did this become part of their family life and their traditions as history went by? So that's the cooking genius in a nutshell. Um, wow. It's a, it's a detective story of my genealogy, and genetics has come in big into play into that. It's, uh, you know, a, a story about right and wrong, the morals and ethics of food today. And it's also just a personal journey to sort of figure out who I am.
0: That could take even longer.
1: Yeah, it's not, it'll never be it'll never be over, and that's the, I think mean, I think that's the thing I didn't count on. I you know I really thought Mark, I thought I was going to have me have me a little Julia and Julia thing going on, and it it's really it's never going to end, and I'm, and maybe I'm happy about that.
0: No, I think it's a very cool um, thing. Uh, I, I mean, it's interesting the thing you raised here about about the for people who are not African American to understand and accept and address where our culinary roots come from and on a lot of levels. I mean, because it seems to me, I I believe in this thing where there there are kind of historical waves and just moments we're caught up in uh, for lots of reasons that we don't control. But Mm -hmm. these last 15 years, if Du Bois said that that, that the 20th century was the century of dealing with race, I think that, that this century so far is addressing the depth of race and racism the depth of race is America, but as importantly, the, the power of race and the effect that the African-descended race, African-descended people have had on the Western Hemisphere and world culture that we've not really accepted beyond R&B. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Right.
0: <laughs> or music. Right. And I think that, that's and so part of what you're talking about here is that.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the bottom line is is that Africans in the Atlantic world, were the midwives of the modern world.
2: Mm,
0: Well put.
1: There is nothing clearer to me than this. I mean, um, the the West and Central African engagement with Western civilization changed everything. And it's almost a question, as I've always asked, of who is enslaving who. Is it the coercion, the physical force, or is it the cultural, the overwhelming cultural influence from, you know, the United States to Brazil, that sings of this persistent stubbornness um, that is African civilization and, and mentality about the world? So for me, I really want people to understand how African they are, and that every time they put a forkful of food into their mouth that comes out of this heritage, they are not tourists. They are participants in African civilization. In the same way that you know, any any person of African descent who is in the Western Hemisphere is a participant in Western civilization. It's, it's a two-way street.
0: It, it, and so, but, but it's a two-way street. And I think what you're saying here, though, is that We've only recognized as a one way street for a long time.
1: Exactly. Right. And and and, and celebrated and, and in a weird way celebrated the assimilation and demise of a lot of the heritage that came from Africa. And to me, I'm I'm not celebrating that. In fact, one of the hardest and most tragic parts about this project is writing the story of my family in slavery. Hmm. Because there is no there is no linear narrative because these people were commodities only to the extent that specific ancestors of mine were commodities that you know had recorded values and were assessed as property do they actually have a biography and it's really that's really difficult that's something that you know you know is there you know that's part of the story, but it really hard to sort, of, to, to sort of grasp that, no, you don't, I mean, you don't have this sort of complete narrative or documentation. But for a lot of people, that meant throwing out everything, the baby and the bathwater, okay? That meant not dealing with African-American stories, period. Because simply they were just, you know, there's these mosaic tiles, you know, tiles. You know, I'm lucky to have pictures, and I'm lucky to have... Um, of these ancestors as, as, as elderly people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm lucky to have, you know, I found my, um, through, through working with a scholar, I found my um, great-great-great-grandfather's Bill of Sale, um, which is, you know, for African-American geologists, is like, holy grail, because almost none of us have those kind of documents. Um, and that he ran away from slavery as a teenager and was captured. Um, How did you find all after- that out? Oh, I kept digging. I kept digging. I have a really great... Um, first of all, I enlist the help of a friend of mine, um, Tony Carrier of Low Country Africana, who specializes in African-American genealogy. And um, then I just kept digging. You know, she kept on doing the genealogist thing, of being, being very thorough and very exact. Because I'm going to tell you right now, as a warning to my haters, um, <laughs> I, I, I've already spotted you from a mile away I already know what you're going to say, that my ethnic, um, my DNA, ethnic results are bunk, and that um, I don't know anything more than anyone else knows, and it's wishful thinking, and there's simply not enough documentation, and, you know, you're going go to go retrace my genealogy, even though when I asked you to do it before, you said, you think it was going to cost me a lot of money. See, Mark, hold on, i got to say this right now. <laughs> they did this to Alex Haley. <laughs> they said they said to Alex Haley, you know, Alex Haley spent millions of dollars, right, trying to figure out who he was. And then when he put it all together, for good or for ill, because there were he was he was an amateur genealogist, he wasn't a professional. They came after Alex Haley and then retraced his genealogy for him. For free. But to do what? To debunk him. To discredit him. So I said, they're not going to do that to me. I won't have it. So that was very important to me to sort of lay down those lines. But I also reached out to a number of scholars across the country who were doing, um, you know, similar work so that I could have sort of a a protection against that kind of nonsense. Mm -hmm. But they're going to come for me on those levels because the the basic people are afraid of African Americans being able to tell the story, they don't like it. Because it's akin to, in a lot of ways, Holocaust denial. And people trying to say, why are you dragging that up? Nobody wants, you know, nobody wants to be culpable or responsible. And nobody wants to be, um, nobody wants to have this dirty laundry aired. And they don't want African Americans to be able to own this story fully. So that's why I did the whole thing. I wanted people to know that exactly where my European ancestry comes from, exactly where my African ancestry comes from, my Native American and my Asian ancestry, big surprise, comes from, and just sort of like mull over all of that and understand that everybody on the planet Earth is a part of these complex stories. Right? Anybody can look at my story and find themselves in it.
0: So is this part of your. We you said before we started in the air that you have a book coming out in november yes is that this is part of the book what is the book
1: yeah the cooking gene is the book (laughs) the cooking cooking gene gene is the book project okay yes that eventually became the book uh it was almost it was almost like uh i didn't have a choice once we got started um and started to, to film and and take pictures and you know stories started to pile up um, I didn't have a plan of doing a book in the first place. I just thought I was just going to do this thing that was going to, you know, maybe create more traffic for my blog and give me a little bit more of a voice. But really, uh, it became interesting more than that. People really wanted to know um, about this whole project and about this whole story in one package. So that's why I gave the book.
0: You know, I was thinking I'm, I can't wait for that book to come out. That'll give us a lot to talk about for a very long time. Um, I was thinking about. Uh, a piece that was in this article about you on The Post. I'm really glad you got this uh, exposure. I mean, you, you deserved it. Deser- you. you deserve it, I should say. Not deserved, but deserve it. But there's one thing that made me think about this. When you were talking about the Paula Dean response, which, which you can describe in a moment to our listeners who don't know about that from 2013, I, 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 Dr. John popped in my head. <laughs>
2: <laughs> ah.
0: Because you wrote, when you wrote and said, your barbecue is my West African barbecue, I can hear the John going, your barbecue is nothing better than my barbecue, you know. <laughs>
1: right. Hey, there you go. There you go. Right? So,
0: but ah. but, but that, I can see that a whole riff you just did, your fried chicken, your red rice, your hoe cake, your watermelon, your black eye peas, your of peas, your muspelons, your peanuts, hot peppers, Brunswick stew, okra stew, bene, jambalaya, hop and john gumbo, stew greens and fat meat, a part of West mm-hmm. Central Africa. That, I mean, that's, that, that, those are very important things.
1: I mean it's a pedigree. Right. The food has a genealogy, just like the people have a have a genealogy. And any in, in any other sense, when we talk when we talk about the Western pedigree of anything, people get really intense about it, Mark. They get really intense about it. You know I mean do you really think that I'm gonna go run around talking about history of champagne? <laughs> well I don't know I, I don't know from champagne. All I know is you put it in the glass, you give it to me, I drink it. But I know this much. If it's not from champagne, it's champagne. Because it has a protection on it.
0: Right, right.
1: It right. can only come from this part of France. It can only be made by. There is not one single food that Africans or Africans in diaspora produce that is endemic to their heritage that has any such similar protection but That's uh, why. Go ahead, I'm did, sorry. Do you get that?
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: Not one. None of it has. Been, so, in other words, there's a lot of champagne going on when it comes to soul food and southern food. There's a lot of fakeness going on. There's a lot of people jumping in and claiming parts of this legacy or redoing or rematching it in ways that do not honor or respect the people or the tenets of the culture. They are appropriating. So that's that's, that's important. Um, a lot of people get bent up on the word appropriation. And the problem is this. Diffusion of culture is natural and will happen whether anyone likes it or not. People will always exchange culture on an almost subcutaneous level. It's like they don't even realize they're doing it. They're taking each the accents and food and everything. That's not what we're talking about. We're also not talking about people experimenting and making the food of other people for their own sort of like, you know, gastronomic benefit, you know, to eat it, to enjoy it, or to learn more about other people. That's not what we're talking about. That's not not culinary appropriation at all. What we're talking about is the way in which um, people of privilege use the tools given to them by systemic racism in order to kind of finagle... A power imbalance when it comes to representing themselves through food to put it more simply it's you know why is it that when a white male chef particularly one that looks hip young and and innovative creates a brand around themselves does the same food but they get triple the press for it you know tons more money tons more support tons more everything for what, you know, a black person doing the same food from within the culture, they're struggling. They're, at best, they're a mom and pop. At worst, they're on the roadside on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> and they might be in a church basement, but they're struggling. Washington Post came up with an article just a day ago, talking about how black barbecue joints are struggling to exist. Meanwhile, these hipster establishments are, are exploding in popularity. And people who never, who did not come from this heritage, who have never, who who have never learned under the best black uh, barbecue masters, who, by the way, have been the barbecue masters in this country since day one. So it's it's really difficult to have that conversation. I mean, even after my TED presentation that evening at one of the big parties, and I must tell everybody that these are not, this is just some open free-for-all people pay a great deal of money to come to these conferences to chat and attend it. Um, one person um, who I don't even know who they were, they were an attendee, basically lambasted, lambasted me for my whole theory of culinary appropriation and culinary justice. Um, and said that it, they said to me, and maybe you can respond to this, Mark. They said to me, well, if somebody makes matcha balls, I'm not offended. In fact, I'm, I'm thrilled. So what's the problem? So you see, they took the whole argument and put, it, put themselves in my shoes. Well, I, so I didn't I, have. They didn't start from the right place.
0: Well, here's, one of the big differences here is, is that um, Jewish food, in twentieth century, late nineteenth century, coming to America, did affect the American cuisine without a doubt. In many many deep ways. But it was always, we always knew where it came from. Mm. We always knew what it was. We always knew who made it first. Right. Um, we And how it affected our culture. The difference is, when you talk about barbecue or anything else, or gumbo or anything else, I mean, gumbo being an African word, right, for okra. Well, right. I forget which nation it is that came up with the word gumbo, but which West African nation but,
1: the Kimbundu people of Angola.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, that that so so that's the difference. Is that w- one is completely completely whitewashed in a, in a very literal sense um, and and sanitized of its blackness. That didn't happen. Mm. That didn't happen with Jewish food or Italian food. That's become and American. Let's,
1: let's be real. Kosheroot for many for many years,
0: which means kosher food. the Jewishness. Right.
1: Yes. Kosher. The kosher laws protected the Jewishness of the food because you had to go to the deli, which was within the Jewish community. Right. You had to go to, and let's uh, uh, be real, Jewish folks in America, especially after acquiring the the, the layer of whiteness. Yes. In some cases. Right. They, they understood the importance of n- keeping track of the narrative. You know... You don't have to be Jewish to eat Levy's rye. That ad alone tells you everything you need
0: to know. Absolutely, and I so I'm I'm thinking what I was thinking about as you were saying that was that is is how you. This is political and it's not political. I mean, it's not political. This is not straight up a political question. But most things are a political question at some level in this existence of the Western world. Um, that this opening. Of the of America, and the West to really wrestle with the the question of its blackness, which I think is happening now. How do you think that affects our future? I mean, how do you, how do you think it changes who we are and our dynamic to accept that? You know, sometimes when I speak mm. to white audiences, I will say, uh, "If you're American, you're African." You're right. Like, what? 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 Right. <laughs> right. And so, but but to begin to come to grips with that, how do you think that changes us?
1: Well, we have to get out the black box. What you told them was that you're not the black box is not real. You know the idea that if something is African or black, it's not in some, you know, zoo exhibit, where the uncivilizedness is walled off from the rest of us. You know, when you say African, you got to really prove it. People don't believe you, but what they need to understand is. This has been going on for several hundred years and the evolutionary process of of this in our culture is not done yet. And we have a number of different sort of like conscious issues that we have to process in order to really sort of deal with who we are. We don't see we we, we it's like we we're looking at ourselves in these cultural, you know, circus mirrors. We're looking at, We're not really. The reflection that we're getting is not really what we we're, we're, we're really are inside. Of who we, you know, it's it, it, it's hard to get people to move past those categories. So I use food as a means of saying we have already breached number of our um, walls, and we need to figure out what those walls are, and we need to argue. We need to have it out. I don't want kumbaya. I want us to argue. I want us to get out our distrust, our fears, our angers, and our anguish. And some of it, we will never be able to deal with. Okay, let's just be real. And some of it, we will be able to deal with and come to some terms on. And so that's what I addressed to Ted. I just said to them, I don't want a kumbaya moment. I don't want to sit down with you and just sit up there and go, okay, a random white person, it would be great if we just dropped all of our our boundaries and all of our, our you know, lines that so, so-called divide us and just embrace our humanity, that's not good enough. It's never been good enough. You can be human and be different. Um, just like you can be an individual and still be human, part of the human family. That's how ethnicity goes. And ethnicity is not static. It's fluid. It's dynamic. And everybody has those, in this modern world has, you know, that fluid kind of identity that moves between um, sections and, and categories. And if you don't recognize that, then you're doing a very poor job of being a 21st century human.
0: So, do, as, as you cook your way through America and do these demonstrations and conversations in places like Williamsburg and numerous former plantations, and you're making these incredible meals, many of which you don't eat because a lot of them are pork— Um, but, um, but, um, do, do people get it?
1: Uh, sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I mean, one of the best things ever is when people start testifying who grew up, you know, within earshot of the places where I'm cooking. Um, I've learned that that's one of the most important moments is when these elders start talking about things and and young people do. So the, I call the young people, the tape recorders of the elders, because uh, sometimes, you know, old folk, they say things, and they don't remember they said them. And it might be a spectacular story. And like like me, I was that tape recorder. And I remember often my grandmother saying, oh, well, I said that? And I said, yeah, and all of a sudden that trigger another memory, and she'd go on another story. And so I like that. I like when people come with their, their, you know, grandchildren and, and their children, and the whole, you know, several generations then they start talking. You know, I, I, tell them, I tell them, no, 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 don't stop talking. Don't shut up. Please keep going. Because I need to know. We all need to know. Um, and I need to know that I'm telling the story right. The other element is that sometimes people, they appreciate, they they, they mistake me for an apologist. Right. For slavery or an apologist for the old ways. How they do and I that? am not.
0: No, how, how would they mistake that?
1: Oh, I, I don't know. I guess it's because I, I'm willing to put on the, the so-called slave clothes and willing to go to the plantation as a place of as a place of cultural memory. And it's like, no, I'm not honoring the system. I hate the system. Um, I'm here for totally subversive reasons.
0: <laughs> but and that but you I, are, which is good. But that's what we need right now. Is that subversion? So
1: Right. But so, they think they think they think I'm there as with sympathy. I, I I don't have any sympathy for these people <laughs> who um, created such a miserable self replicating um, mentality called like supremacy. I have no sympathy whatsoever. I don't see them in nuance. I don't use phrases like it was a different time. No, 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 no. I am there as their worst nightmare. That's That gives me incredible pleasure. You know, in Yiddish, we use the word shtuk, like a stick. It's a shtuk in the eye of white supremacy every time I get up and do that. Because every time somebody rolls up in a Confederate battle uniform, every time somebody rolls up in a hoop skirt at these places, they have their own agendas and their own narratives that they're trying to push forward. I'm not saying everybody who's a reenactor has that mentality, excuse me, or interpreter or docent. But when I first started going to these different plantations as a visitor and then as an exhibitor, I started noticing that 70% of the time I was dealing with somebody who completely did not have my narrative or my history in their best interest. So I had to figure out a way around that to confront it without being, you know, I would not say offensive, but without being... um, too brutal about it. I wanted a, want a soft way to confront it that would sort of like sneak up on you. And I can't think of any better way than food. And my goal is to put everybody at the same table. We will not always agree on any everything and anything. And I'm okay with that. It's just the fact of life. But the bottom line is is that that subversion and that argument is critical to have that debate so we can move forward.
0: Michael Twitty, it is always a joy to talk to you. I look forward to much longer conversations and really getting into some and, and for your book coming out and even more. Um, so absolutely. So, that, how can people pre-order this book?
1: Oh yeah, um, I will be happy to send a link to the Mark Steiner Show. Great. Um, and I'll be happy to they can look on my my blog. A big announcement coming out uh, later on um, today this evening link on, my, on a blog post and they can also see me at Michael W. Twitty on my Facebook fan page or see me at Kosher Soul on Twitter. Um, I'm just going to tell everybody right now that um, when it comes to social media, don't be shy when it comes to sharing good work. You may not be able to buy everybody's thing or support them financially, but the shares that you give on Facebook and Twitter and other social media are like gold, and they're free, and they take seconds to do. If you can share a story about a cat, or you can share a story about Kanye, or whoever else out there doing whatever, or Beyonce, you can share a story about a young brother trying to do good by his people. So I encourage you to share, to pre-order the book. If you can do that, that's wonderful. That lets publishers know that our stories are worth telling, that our stories are worth investing in, that our stories are worth preserving.
0: Michael Twitty, brother, thank you so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure to have you on the air with us.
1: Thank you Kylie Mark.
0: We have to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll be talking with Eric Jackson, Servant Director of the Black Yield Institute, about black food sovereignty. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner right here on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. We're about to have a conversation with Eric Jackson here in the studio, who is the founder of the Black Yield Institute uh, and is doing, leading a series of discussions on the prospect of black food sovereignty here uh, at the United Pratt and other places and joins me in studio and as a part of a GoFundMe campaign, which we'll learn about as well. And Eric, good to see you, man. Welcome. Good to see you, Mark. Thanks. So, so this is, tell me about this transition you made here, this Black Yield Institute. So how did this start? What is it?
2: Um so it's an uh, organization we're building um a network of um black people from across the, the food system to um you know pursue and eventually get to a place of black food sovereignty here in uh Baltimore and um on a regional uh level.
0: So I mean so how's that play itself out? I mean I know we've we've had a lot of conversations with black farmers in this community, with mm. other farmers in this community, um, with uh, the Reverend Doctor Heber Brown, mm-hmm. who who started the food, food, the church food security network. Yeah, black church. Black food church. Security. Black church yeah. food security network, getting black churches to create farms. Sure. So how, how does all this fit into all this? What is what's the connections here? Certainly, I
2: mean, there there uh, that is the connection. My my goal is to, um, again, for us to create an institute that you know, works with other groups that catalyzes other uh, businesses and other groups and organizations so that we get to a place of uh, food sovereignty. One of the things that um, I've I've actually talked with uh, Dr. Uh, Heber Brown about and some other people is really elevating and shifting the discourse locally uh, toward um, food sovereignty and not just about food access. And one of the things, I guess, the analogy that I've kind of given is um, looking at putting um, a lot of energy into fixing a door on a dilapidated building. But uh, I believe that the pursuit of black food sovereignty – uh, looks at fixing the whole house, and if you fix the whole house, then you fix the door. And in that analogy, um, food access is the analogy. Access by itself doesn't address the larger issues around um, ownership of seeds and ownership of land, um, controlling our water, controlling where we get the food from. And right now, of course, with the uh, food access efforts um, that we that we see, um, people are fed, if you can call it that, in some cases, but when we look at who's benefiting from it, it's not black people. Black people are eating. And and in some cases, and I I hate to be, you know, pessimistic, but um, black people are being fed, but also being fed disease and and other things um, that are not uh, contributing to the overall power building and using food as a tool to do that, to achieve that. So that's what we're looking to do. Um, We're looking to uh, educate. We're looking to build and really build power, so we control those things um, in, uh, in, the, I guess, um, in partnership and with co- in collaboration with other groups um, that are already doing this work.
0: And so, how do you see that playing out? I mean, I, I, one of the things I was looking at the other day in, in a class I'm teaching is we did this overlay of these maps mm-hmm. from the early part of the 1900s to now. Mm-hmm. And the places that where black folks lived in the early 1900s that were part of the segregation of housing order that were then part of the redlining that took place that forced black people to live in certain districts, not getting money to be put into those communities, are the very same districts when you lay do the overlay of of food deserts, mm-hmm. uh, lack of access to food, they're the same neighborhoods. Certainly. Certainly. Amazing. I mean, just the map just shows the history. is of who we are and what we've come to.
2: Certainly. And one of the things, so um, they are on different levels, different layers. I, I see it playing out in different ways. But one of the, the fundamental things that we have to do, and that actually I'm working with some uh, some partners, some researchers, to look at, to map, um, and to look at, to research what's happening around food. There's so much that's come out of the Center for a Livable Future around um what kinds of food are being purchased in these so-called food deserts, which I despise that word, by the way. Um, why do you despise
0: that word? I, mean, I hate to interject. Yeah, request, no, no. What I, mean, you, what because, mean? I mean, because
2: I mean, there's, uh, you know, a desert is a, a, naturally occurring, um, condition <laughs> that, uh, that comes from climate change and, uh, so-called food deserts happen because of, um, all of those things you just talk about. I sum it up as racism, and white supremacy in the food system. And that's one of the manifestations. And so, um, one of the things that's not um, on anybody's or in anybody's research uh, report or anything is specifically how much money is being uh, spent on food and where we're getting that from. And so we're actually looking to map that. And I'm hoping to use that that kind of information and create that kind of knowledge that would... Um, potentially turn people to think about, well, how much money we're actually contributing to um, other communities from an economic standpoint. So again, I mean, people are being fed, but when it comes down to it, uh, we should be able to be fed, but also reap the benefits from that as well. So we're talking about... um, not reliving but continuing the tradition of not just around um, having access to food, but wealth building as well. I mean, I believe that food can be one of those things that uh, the vehicle to um, to organize around, to unite our, our people, and to use it as a way to build wealth. And that's one of the things. I mean, when we put the numbers—we can say arbitrarily right now that— um, And I mean no disrespect, but this is true. Uh, Korean American and other uh, uh, brothers and sisters are feeding us and not always feeding us the good stuff, um, but also are reaping the economic and political benefits from that. And so um, I contend and we contend that it's important for us to have um, access to healthy, affordable food, but also that comes from our hands, from the seed to to waste.
0: You know, this is a – I mean, it's a very important subject. I've, I mean, Heber and I have talked a great deal about Heber sure. Brown, <clears throat> uh, the Black Church Food Security mm-hmm. Network, and getting churches to begin to grow food. Now, that's a component of this. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that I, I learned from people like Michael Twitty is how in in Baltimore, um, that that black people actually control a lot of the food distribution in the early part of the 20th century, something mm-hmm. I didn't know. Certainly.
2: Um, all actually all the way back to the seventeen hundreds, right? Exactly controlling the the food trucks, even the the a rabbers, or at least I believe that's not a direct connection, but the a rabbers have come out of that tradition. So you, even historically, we just did a. a, a um, a, um, a talk on the history of, of black food from 1642 to 2016, and that's one of the things in doing research that I found out that you see these cycles of uh, power and powerlessness from a collective standpoint. And so, um, I'm just looking to ride that wave so we build power and, and create some level of sustainability. You know.
0: So, so, uh, well, and I guess part of what I was thinking about is when you think about building food sovereignty there's a couple of things let me start mm-hmm. with one is that um a lot of the stores that used to be owned by white people and jewish americans in mm-hmm. black communities are now owned by korean americans mm-hmm. and there are also black americans who owned those stores back in the day as well mm-hmm. but there weren't but people had access to food right i don't care you know in in, in all communities in baltimore people had access to food mm-hmm. Um, and the A-Rabbers were part of that food distribution mm-hmm. system throughout the black community and throughout the entire community of right. Baltimore. But they were part of that food distribution system. Corner stores used to sell actual vegetables and other things that weren't just the unhealthy foods mm-hmm. that we're getting in, in, in corner stores now. So I, I wonder how you – how do you envision that changing? And um, – but how do you envision that change? Let me stop there.
2: Yeah, one of the ways that we're looking to do that is to again to build a network of people across the across the food system, not just locally, but we're gonna have to bring in their folks um, throughout our region who are not reaching Baltimore City, black farmers, um, not just in Maryland but throughout this uh, Mid Atlantic region, who are um, you know who can not only use the business um, but also who. Uh, could could get these you know kind of um these pipelines you know into baltimore city just like what you know um the uh black church food security network is doing but on a you know kind of a a larger scale and i'm hoping to um engage all people from those who are um who are um, who own restaurants who distribute food and we 're doing it in a coordinated way and figuring out ways to um to build and sustain um cooperative economics, you know what i mean to to really live that principle and not you know not just talk about it uh during kwanzaa but that we live that out um and I think that one of the ways that we do that is by having you know um financial investment and getting back to i know we've you all have talked about on the show and also in general um elevating this um or amplifying this conversation around cooperative business development right and we have so, talked about that right a lot so you know so developing these kinds of uh, community-based uh businesses that meet the needs of community but specifically around food you know and part of that is going to have to be divestment from other people who are already selling the food if that makes sense and so um Part of that has to be education, going back to learning about those kinds of things. Um, and then some of it is around specifically around financial investment. And so that's um, I'm not an economist. I'm not a business person. I'm a trained social worker, but I am an organizer and um, and we're looking forward to, to do the work. But I have to really um, to, to frame it, to really um, get down to what the real issues are using data, um, and not just data, but, you know, moving forward. And we have to build a community because part of this has to be around trust, right, mm-hmm. and relationship building that goes beyond um, uh, what we have now, but that in an intentional way thinking about how we actually um, achieve this. So, you know, I think that there are many ways to do that. Um, but one thing I'm very clear about and, and uh, forthright about is that I don't have all the answers. That's why we're building a network of people that have different skills and different, you know, um, uh, expertise. So,
0: sorry. what is it? So, so, what is the GoFundMe campaign?
2: So, we're, the GoFundMe uh, campaign, um, we're, we're looking to raise um, fifteen thousand dollars to start some of this stuff, and a lot of it is around our relationship building. Uh, one of the programs that we have is um, um, Black Space Black Food. That is the the series that you talked about, um, where we are um, beginning to create. Black space, and I want to be very clear um, that it's an uh, inclusive space, but it is very much a black space where we learn about food, celebrate, and heal around, you know, food. So we lift up uh, black businesses, black food, and food-related businesses locally, um, and so we're looking to fund that. We're looking to fund the research um, and just uh, some very kind of low-level equipment, things like that, that would uh, help us to get the work done. I have some. Um, uh, some funders who want to fund the work as we, you know, develop our um, the, the organizational structure. But right now, the GoFundMe, you know, campaign really is to uh, fund some of the stuff that, you know, um, the philanthropic community at the moment, you know, won't fund or can't fund because of mm-hmm. the limitations. And so we're looking at um, raising $15,000 by uh, May 19th. Um, 2016. Malcolm and, X's um, birthday. Certainly very intentionally. <laughs> um, and and our goal there is to continue the work that we've already done. Right now we're we're doing it out of pocket, my queen and I. So yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that that's, that that can get old. Um. So so uh, were you doing a were you doing a series of t- talks at Enoch Pratt? like
2: Sure. Yeah. So up? we started this uh, this Saturday. On the uh, 20th, 2.30 to 5, and I bring that time because we actually have another one this Saturday, 2.30 to 5. Um, we started a, with a talk. We called it From Strange Fruit to Black Yield, and that was a, hmm. a talk um, about Maryland's um, uh, food history or black people and food from uh, 1642, the the year that the first um, group of Africans came here to this colony. To uh, 2016, and really the message was um, there were a few, but one of the, the the things that we lifted up is that you know we already know that, but we built this not just on food. Uh, you know, one of the the two cash crops, you know, wheat and corn, um, and then tobacco, the non-food item, just bring elevating that point that there was uh, three things that are killing us, and we actually used that to build this uh, this this uh, state, and um, you know, kind of taking a very um, broad stroke kind of journey to the the um, the 21st century, and then um, really just you know talked about the concept that there are certain things that have been introduced, and I overheard your conversation with Michael Twitty um, about our food, what's African or Black food, and in some ways we've lost that. And so with this second event, which is this Saturday, the 27th, from 2.30 to 5, Cherry, Cherry Hill Branch. Cherry Hill Branch, uh, Yeah, okay. Cherry Hill Branch of Enoch Pratt Library. Um, we're going to explore um, the idea of what traditionally um, is African and, you know, African-American foods and uh, making the case that we need to return back to those things, not just from a... Uh, you know, sociocultural perspective, but also from a, a, a very, a, you know, dietary and nutritional standpoint, we need to get back to those foods because other foods that we were introduced to be, um, and uh, perfected through our culinary traditions out of necessity right now are not necessarily sustaining us from a um, nutritional standpoint.
0: So who are you doing the lectures?
2: No, so I did the first one. The second one this Saturday um we will do a there's going to be a screening of a, a talk by um Dr. Africa a um a uh, naturopathic doctor who really gets into that and then um to you know generally speaking the concept of what's african foods or foods that we should um eat and then we'll have a panel discussion after where uh, we have a few local um herbalists and um naturopathic practitioners um, to speak to the topic speak to the issues and begin a community dialogue around that particular issue, what we should be eating, and using this again as a conversation, but the to catalyze a conversation about shifting how we eat but also controlling those things so that 's how we're you know looping it into our uh, our go our pursuit of black food sovereignty um, there has to be this shake up. Not just the conversation, the, the economic and political conversation about controlling food and having um, ownership of land and food and water and all of these things and seeds, but also the shift that um, you have to create a, consu- a consumer base, right? You know, the, you know, if we're developing businesses, if we're developing a network, it has to be relevant, right? So we're using black space, black food um, as one of the program areas to, like I said, educate, re-educate, reintroduce to our food and to each other, really, and do it in an intentional way. Um and then again and I going back to the early part where you said, you know, how you see this rolling out, right. um it has to be uh, holistic. We're looking at the, the the pathways that we look to work through are um economic, political, social cultural and um Spiritual, um, psychological, and I got this from some readings that I've done, um, and uh, so that's also. Let me go back. That's one of the things that the GoFundMe um, uh, campaign is funding as well to for uh, myself to. Um, go around the country to reconnect with folks like um, the, the family up in Detroit, um, uh, Baba Malik and, and the other uh, folks, the community there. I don't want to lift him up, the person, but uh, Detroit um, Black Community Food Security Network, as well as other people from around the, the, uh, the country who are doing this work, who are working towards uh, food sovereignty, including um, brothers and sisters in the um, indigenous you know uh native indian american indian whatever the you know uh, terms are folks are using to find out what they're doing for their people there's so many examples nationally i want to reintroduce the people that I know and reconnect and then uh, learn from some other people. And one thing I've learned from afar through readings is that folks are not just this is not just about a health pursuit. This is not just economic. This is not just political. It's spiritual. It's cultural. And we have to have to um, encompass all of these things if it's going to um, sustain, if it's going to sustain itself beyond uh, generation um, and if it's going to be successful. And so that's that's the goal and a, a, a very young organization A, a modest prime. goal <laughs> <laughs> Very, very ambitious very ambitious but but we're in it for the long haul
0: no, that, so so um if you if you play this out um mm-hmm. the time we have left here i'm just i'm just we'll talk more in the future sure. i'm very curious about this i mean so is part of the philosophy that you think that that the black community in baltimore or anywhere else can be completely self-sustaining is that what you're suggesting?
2: Certainly. And I I'm also saying that and what we're pursuing is that Baltimore itself and there's conversations nationally that have um that you know cities are looking at becoming uh food sovereign. I'm saying that um, black people need to control that. This is a 63 percent, um, almost 64 percent black city, right, population wise. There's no reason why we don't control the food that we have. If you look at it, most of what we're doing and I, and I lift up what uh, sisters and brothers are doing um we have cafes and we have restaurants, um, and in some cases um, we, we have some other things. We're not controlling those things, and so that's the philosophy, to build not only our philosophy but our approach is to build a, a, uh, a, a Pan-African um, uh, network of people and I'm not just talking about so called African Americans. I'm talking about African people. Um and one of the challenges is that, that we're not connected. And so that we um I believe we've controlled our food before out of necessity because of segregation um that was legal. Now we have uh illegal um segregation that exists and um and the ability and the the uh the markets are there. You know, um we just have to tap into it and it's happening across the, the country and there's a uh, international network of African people who are looking at um, uh, sustainability for not just in how we you know our food but how we build our houses um, here and abroad and so that's that's the philosophy um, that we take an African-centered approach we take no you know we have no qualms with that but that we um, we work with a, a group of, of leaders um, in the, the the black community and again black Uh, We have to have that um, political identity because of the nature of racism and white supremacy. Um, But phenotypically, we're African people, no matter where we were born. So I'm looking at uh, connecting so-called African-American people. And I would say uh, by identity, I'm an African person. But somebody might say, well, you were born in Baltimore. (laughs) Uh, You you grew up in Cherry Hill, you know, that I'm a so-called African-American. But looking at people, even our um, there's some... Uh, an Ethiopian brother that I've been in conversation with, um, and uh, a brother who was born in Nigeria. And, you know, so we're we're um, you know looking at connecting across the board. And I believe that yes, the Black community can be uh, um, uh, food sovereign, but also I believe that we can develop those businesses so that other people actually, so that Baltimore um, can be sovereign itself. But well, I'm saying we're going to lead the charge,
0: Eric Jackson. <laughs> the Black Yield Institute, uh, servant director of the Black Yield Institute, uh, the GoFundMe.com campaign. Uh, you can search Black Yield Institute in this f- Saturday at...
2: 2.30, 2.30 to 5, uh, the Cherry Hill branch of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Um, and uh, we're going to have a conversation about, um, about black food.
0: Eric, thank you for stopping by.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are a production of the Center for Emerging Media. It made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Public Radio Delmarva is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Sienna Greaves, Morgan Barber, Monifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. To hear this show again, podcast any of our past shows, and find out information from the interviews we are doing on this program, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcasts on iTunes. And for the home of the 2016 mayoral debate, WEAA 88.9 FM, The Voice of the Community. And for WSDL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.